Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our Game Changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then, buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and, of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, everybody, welcome to the Gamekeeper Studio as we count down uh, the to, days to turkey the season. season. Oh, it, yeah, won't, it won't be long, will it? Well, i tell you what, it's sure warm enough out there right now. It, it's like, a, it just feels great. It feels like a, the spring is here. It does. It feels like May outside. It yeah, was, it does. It was, I just was driving back from the main office and it said 88 degrees on my windshield. Record highs today, supposedly. Red, bu- red buds are already blooming. Mm-hmm. It's not even... March yet? No, it is still February. It it so is there a chance we could have another frost or another I mean, freeze? Sure, oh, it's Mississippi. It could be twenty degrees tomorrow for all we know. Mm, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is. Well, look. So the last couple of podcasts, you know, we talked about Osceolas, and then we talked about Rios. Mm-hmm. So today we're going to talk about Miriams. Miriams, which is the mountain they're, turkey. They're, yeah, they're, they're fascinating. Yeah, they and are. do you know where they got their name, Lanny? Um, I don't, you Bobby. I was going to I was going to shoot from the hip, but it wasn't going to be good. <laughs> yeah. Somebody's last name. Yeah, we'll, we'll learn about oh, that today. I'm sure it's one of the things that we're going to ask. And uh, but before we get started, I've just, I've got a, our producer Richie, our esteemed producer, who has you know he's had all kind of troubles through, through in producing this podcast with mic- <laughs> microphones and uh, just all sorts of stuff. But the other day, I walked back to his office to do something. And I want to ask, Richie, when I walked in there, did I catch you asleep or were you praying? Because I, I paused there for a second. I said, he might be praying. His eyes were closed. He's got and, a lot to do, so maybe that's what and, and then all of a sudden you jumped, and and I left. But I wanted to ask, what what did I encounter there? I was in deep meditation. There you go. There you go. Guys, I think Richie may have sleep apnea. Let me tell you what Wouldn't Richie be the- did. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. Let, me, let me tell you what Richie did, did though, this morning. So, yeah. you know, we have an office refrigerator and a kitchen, you know, like most offices and most refrigerators and, uh, a certain someone had, um, been using the kitchen after hours last night, doing a couple of things in the kitchen and had, had, you know, knocked some, said, knocked some things out of the refrigerator and un- unknowingly had knocked, um, one of our esteemed, uh, coworkers beverages beverage her sprite yeah out of the out of the refrigerator and it was just on the floor this morning and she was very upset about it and and duly so you know had her name on it labeled properly and everything else um and she so kindly was to send an email out letting everybody know (laughs) you know that 
<clears throat> what had happened and what had transpired and how it was not kosher. It wasn't, I mean, this is not good. And I agree with her a thousand percent. Problem was I was on a conference call on a video call. Uh, we were, we were walking, working on some seed stuff. You know? Uh, and, uh, uh, so I realized immediately that it was me that had committed this infraction. Um, yet I didn't have time to get to, to the, our fellow coworker instead. But when I did, I came around the corner and there was Richie in front of her saying, I did it. I did it. Blame it on me. Yeah. He took one for the <laughs> he team. He took one for the team. When you he know, didn't even do it. He didn't, he didn't do you do think it. he thought he did it? Maybe he has sleep <laughs> back, man. He could be thinking that he actually did that. No, I knew I didn't do it. Yeah, yeah. and I knew team, I did. I was a team player there. He was. He's a total team player. I knew you were a good human. Yeah, I mean, he's just a solid stand-up human being. You know yeah, what I mean? Well, Take one through the, and I, and, you know, and it was me, hundred percent me. So. Uh, yeah, well, I can believe that. Yeah, and, and, I, and I believe Richie's a good guy, but I think he's got sleep apnea. Yeah. I think we need to investigate having you tested there, Richie. Huh. Well, you know, our fellow coworker Chris had sleep apnea. Yeah, we caught him sleeping at his desk. You could not catch him sleeping. You <laughs> no, would hear him sleeping. Yeah, yeah. You would hear him snoring. <laughs> you could not catch him. <laughs> I took my shoes off a couple <laughs> yeah. times and tried tiptoeing in. But as soon as he got it. the sleeping machine, it, you know, the breathing machine, it never yeah, happened again. It never happened again. Yeah, well, he got married, and I think all of a sudden that kind of everything took Yeah, then he got himself. a breathing <laughs> sleeping machine because she wasn't putting up with it. Nah. All right. We, oh, we yeah. love you, Chris. Sorry, sorry. Look. Maybe running over on the office talk. But. Okay. All right. So let's circle back around. And uh, today we're going to talk about mirrors. We've got a guest that came highly recommended to us, and his name is Dr. Chad Lehman. He's from – There we go. Blow the horns for him. He's from South Dakota Game and Fish. He's a senior biologist, been there a long time. He's uh, – guys, if you can – if somehow, if you like, if you can go to YouTube and you can see – he's got roosted turkeys He is sitting him. in a ponderosa pine forest of turkeys right now. I mean, how much more does that? That's that's cool right there. <laughs> Technology. Well, good afternoon, Chad. Yeah, welcome to the Gamekeeper Podcast. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. Well, look, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a senior wildlife biologist for South Dakota Game Fish and Parks. Uh, my office is in the Black Hills. I'm actually housed in in Custer State Park, and I do a lot of research and management of not only wild turkeys, but I also encompass uh, species such as bobcats and bighorn sheep. So my duties include a wide range of, of different research and management uh, type of work. And, and so my job day to day can one day I can be darting a bighorn sheep and the next day I could be rocket netting Miriam's turkeys for a research project. So it's a really fun job and, and I just don't know what I could, you know, I might be doing the next day. So it's, it keeps me on my toes. Oh my goodness, man! Yeah, we might you, need to send Richie to hang out with him for. Yeah, a you handle days. a wide range yeah. of animals. That's and habitats. Like a, a dream job. Yeah, it is. Well, he, just Google his name and the word Dakota, and there will be just a huge list of stuff that he's been working on. That's so cool. Different articles and things. So Richie parked up over there. I think you want to go to South Dakota. Being able to dart a bighorn sheep. I mean, come on. Yeah, that's, how cool is that? <laughs> I mean, that's like a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and you just get uh, to do it. It's just it what we're doing for, on Tuesdays for around here. You get to do it all the time. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> well, look, I don't expect you to answer this question when I when I ask it, but you, but you could maybe nod your head or something. But <laughs> after you dart a bighorn sheep, and you'll probably put a, a mask over him to yeah, calm him down yep. and all that, do you take a picture like, hey, look, I got a bighorn sheep here? <laughs> you know you I've would. Done that, I've done that so many times. 
Uh, I've got lots of pictures. So it gets to a point where it's just like, ah, it's just another big horn and just another number. So yeah, when you first do the first couple, you're like, oh man, I'm going to get lots of photos and it's like catch and release hunting, right? So you're yeah. sitting there with this big ram and you get lots of photos. But then after a while, it's kind of like, well, it's just part of my job. And after you do a few hundred of those, you're kind of like, well, it's just part of the job. Yep. So got to go shoot a tranquilize a bighorn sheep today. Just so, to but before we leave bighorn, I mean, that, that kind of caught me by surprise here, but I don't see how those animals make a living up there in those mountains like they do. Amazing. Do you guys, Nature's amazing. you know, do y'all, are, are there, are there disease issues with the, with the sheep that are different than what uh, other agencies have to deal with? Well, I'll be honest with you, you know, bighorn sheep are um, obviously a really important iconic species throughout the West. And, and they've got a lot of um, importance just because of the disease issues that surround them. So, you know, typically bighorn sheep, they, they would flourish um, on their own. We would have, you know, many more thousands of bighorns across the West if it wasn't for disease. And, and that the big time disease that's a, a major issue is, is related to pneumonia. So it's, it's a pathogen called mycoplasma of pneumonia, which is a an important disease that can be transferred not only from wild sheep to wild sheep, but it can be transferred from domestic sheep to wild sheep and back and forth. So that's the problem is trying to keep these sheep healthy enough to survive um, over the long term. And so that's a lot of the research that we do when we're darting bighorns is focused on testing and sampling for this disease. Wow. It, uh, it's it's an, an, another question that I've got, and then we'll move on to, to turkeys. But back at the time when Lewis and Clark came through, that was a long time ago. But from what I, when I read stuff about what they saw, it sounds to me like they were seeing bighorn sheep down in the lower elevations grazing like cattle. It, am oh, I absolutely, interpreting that absolutely. right? Yeah, there's there's been you know reports that have been published from. Some of the first people that came across, Seton once estimated there was over 2 million bighorn sheep wow. across the West. So you can imagine, you know, Lewis and Clark going across the prairies and seeing thousands of sheep in places just all over the place. So they were out in the grasslands. They were in the foothills of the mountains. They were up in the higher elevations. So you can only imagine, you know, compared to hundreds now in a lot of these herds, they would have been thousands, if not over 2 million sheep across the West. Hmm. That's just I would have loved to have seen all that. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Well, let's get let's let's get back on on, on topic. But let's let's talk about Miriam's. I'm not sure where to start, but like Rio's, they've got a different gobble. And Richie, have you got a Miriam gobble queued up for us? He does not. So. He does. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Okay, Rio ish. It, it, it kind of is. Do you still have that Rio? Yeah, hit the Rio. <laughs> hit that. Hit that Eastern. Oh yeah. Oh. Can, can you hear that? I mean, that do, have, Chad, have you gotten to come back and hunt Rios and Easterns in 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 your career? Oh, absolutely. There's there's no question. There's a different frequency. I I equate a Miriam's gobble to a higher frequency pitch. It's higher. You know, you can hear it uh, in that open country a lot further away, whereas an eastern, to me, has got a lower thunderous tone to it than a, than a Miriam's does. 
And I would say the Rio to me kind of sounds like a hybrid of the two mm-hmm. kind of in that middle pitch. Mm-hmm. And that's just my observation. Yeah. Well, you know more than I do for sure. Well, it makes sense what he's saying too, because I guess I'm, I'm going to use a big word here that I don't even know is right to use, but like geospatially, you know, we always talk about they're trying to get onto a spot here in, in a tree specifically where they can, you know, basically as many hens can hear them as not out there. They've developed a more of a high frequency because of the way the mountains are for the sound will travel longer. But Thank you, Mr. Nolan. Yeah, that's only used for Dudley. Look yeah, at that. Well, look at that. Right. So, I got a gold star today. So what else Thanks can, for the lead in, Chad. Yeah, I that, well, that. Well, yeah, <laughs> no problem. Yeah, he didn't even know what geospatially yeah, is. So. <laughs> I was good with it. So, you know, where would you like to start kind of explaining a little bit about this bird? So I think the, the main thing to take away from, from the Miriam subspecies is it's, it's the habitats that it lives in, right? So... This is a species that evolved in a, in a montane mountain ponderosa pine type habitat. So it, it's, it was, you know, its range occurs from Arizona, New Mexico in the Southwest up through Colorado's its historic range. And it has been reintroduced further North into obviously uh, Western South Dakota, Wyoming and Montana. And, where it seems to do, do very well is in ponderosa pine habitats. So wherever that tree flourishes, like, like the trees in the backdrop here, that's where you're going to find uh, Miriam's populations that are doing well. Now, we do have uh, Miriam's populations also out on the prairie as well. Um, you know, you guys talked about some of the prairie habitats on Rosebud in Indian Reservation, some of those other areas. Those are also good habitats. They do flourish in some of those riparian cottonwood uh, green ash draws as well. But but when you think of Miriam's turkeys, you really think of them you know, in ponderosa pine habitats. And and I think you know just we, we'll probably be comparing them to to Rio Grandes and Easterns probably as we go throughout this program. And I think the takeaway message is these animals, these Miriam's turkeys, really do well in more open habitats. So. A lot of the, the ponderosa pine that I'm describing is called an open pine savanna. So anybody that's hunted Miriam's turkeys in this open pine savanna will, will immediately see that you've got big, big open space pine trees with grasslands underneath, and you can see a long ways through that stuff. And so it's definitely a, an open pine savanna is what they like. Now, they do use some of the other habitats for, for their various life history traits, but but definitely, um, they're they're definitely a, a ponderosa pine bird for sure. So when I think about Miriams, I think about those those lighter colored tips on mm-hmm. their fans. Um, it, it almost they're not quite white, but they're. And then when you land, when you get up close to them and you really look at them, some of those feathers they're almost they're so fine they're like eyelashes. This mm-hmm. little white, mm-hmm. long, elongated. They're they're beautiful. Wispy. Yes, they're they're just absolutely gorgeous. But but it's so in some places in South Dakota, I guess you have Rios and Miriams. So they they perhaps they mix. I, I guess they have an opportunity. Yeah, and and typically what I tell a hunter if they're coming to South Dakota, I tell them if you're going to come. Everything west of the Missouri, 99% of the time, it's going to be a Miriam's turkey. If you're east of the Missouri River, 99% of the time, it's going to be an eastern subspecies. Mm-hmm. So what we've done management-wise in the last 20 to 30 years is we've, we've tried to manage for specifically for Miriam's west of the Missouri River and eastern turkey east of the Missouri River. And for those of you in the audience um, not, not aware of this, 
turkeys are native to South Dakota and the eastern subspecies was the native subspecies to South Dakota. Hmm. And the range typically went from southeastern South Dakota up through a lot of those riparian channels up to the, the mouth of the Cheyenne River and the Missouri River is where they were last seen. So it gives you an idea of where the, the you know indigenous range of the birds was before they were extirpated or removed from the, the landscape in the early 1900s. And then what, what the state did, turkeys were reintroduced then in 1948 in the Black Hills with Miriams from New Mexico, and they just took off. Literally within under four years, we went from having 25 birds reintroduced to 1,000 turkeys in four years. Wow. So that gives you a sense of how well Miriam's turkeys can do in, they in were good busy. Yeah. habitat. <laughs> and then the state subsequently moved uh, those populations into the riparian habitats out on the prairie. And then Rio Grande's, uh, they were reintroduced in the 50, late 50s and 60s for a period of about five to 10 years. And they did well in South Central South Dakota. But, but following that initial reintroduction, Easterns were brought in in the early 1990s. And then subsequent to that, uh, everything's been focused on Eastern wild turkey management east of the Missouri River. Hmm. So we do have, like you guys talk about, we probably have some relic Rio Grande genetics and some of that stuff in, in South Central South Dakota. But for the most part, you're looking at Miriams or Easterns now. Wow. Interesting. They've, they've been busy in South Dakota. Yeah, they have. So uh, do y'all have any, is it a fair question to ask a population estimates on the, on the, on the Miriams? So right now we, we don't have a really good population estimate. How we, how we do it is we take the harvest data for our Black Hills unit and that's, it's an unlimited harvest there. So that gives us a pretty good correlation with what we call a, an abundance estimate. And, and so we do utilize harvest data in a population reconstruction. And right now we're trying to update that data set to get a better estimate. But we typically look at our harvest data for, for the big units like the Black Hills. And then our other prairie units, you know, our allocations are usually in that range from 25 permits to maybe 150 to 200 permits. Some of our bigger units like Gregory County will have 700 permits. So out on the prairie units, we typically don't have, you know, as many birds, obviously, because we have to limit our harvest. So we use our harvest data to kind of get this pseudo uh, population estimate then. Hmm. Dudley, you look like you. Uh, well, I'm just, I'm thinking, and I, I like to think about habitat and trees and stuff. But uh, so before they were extirpated, what do you think the, like the habitat differences were, you know, maybe 500 years ago compared to what we're seeing today? You know, I'm talking about, you know, your, your ponderosa pines, were they yep. thicker, thinner? Was there, you know, more grasses, you know, whatever. Yep. Well, I'm I'm convinced, and and I have no way to prove this, but you know the Black Hills is essentially an island of pine trees, and so I think if turkeys could have found enough of a connector from that southeast country up through the Cheyenne River, they would have made it to the Black Hills. They'd have been highly successful. They just they're, it, geographically they were isolated by these large swaths of of prairie, and if you look at historically in South Dakota. Obviously, fire was on the landscape, and and when you have a lot of fire, uh, that obviously can probably reduce these amount of riparian habitats that you have connecting some of these other bigger places and trees. And and if you look at the fire history of the Black Hills, it was 
a, a fire return interval of every 15 to 20 years. So you were having fire come through that landscape fairly frequently. And so you you would have these trees that would that would build up and they'd grow and then they'd get to a point where they were big enough where they could survive a, a low intensity understory fire. And so you'd get the trees to a certain size where they really weren't being killed by fire. And then all the little trees, of course, were being killed by fire. So, you know, when you're talking a fire return interval of every 15 to 20 years, you're talking there's a lot of disturbance on the landscape. And so that's obviously good for, for a lot of animals, and especially turkeys that, that want this early successional habitat, you know, for nesting and broodering and stuff. So, you know, even though turkeys weren't out there in the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, I think they would have done very well in the Black Hills. Okay. Good to know. Lanny, what about you? Well, you know, when I think of South Dakota, I think of wind and kind of being cold. So <laughs> I just wonder. It's only you know, minus eight here at my house right now. <laughs> wow. Oh, you know. Oh, how would you guys like to come up here and sit up here for a while? Yeah, there's I'd, 90 probably, degrees difference between you and us right yeah, now. Yeah, I would probably <laughs> die. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't make it. That's for sure. Especially with that wind blowing. I can't handle that. So I just kind of wonder, you know, about uh, what these birds do in the winter to make it. No, that's a great question, and, and we get that a lot. And, and one of the things we really prioritize as a state agency is, is winter food plots, and not only for turkeys, but obviously for deer and pheasants and other game birds. And, and so out on the prairie, if, if the birds aren't on a ranch, um, a lot of times they'll be in and around uh, ranch feeding operations for cattle operations. Obviously, that's critically important and a tough. We're having a really actually a, a, a pretty hard winter up here. And, and so the birds will be associated with those feeding operations on ranches. If they're not on there, they're, they're going to be utilizing some kind of food plot, uh, probably corn or oats that have been left out on the landscape to, to help maintain their, their survival over the winter. And in the Black Hills, we've got a different scenario. And I was going to, you know, try and touch on this with habitats with Miriam's turkeys. What they typically feed on in the wintertime is ponderosa pine seed. So that tree right here in the backdrop, has a has a fairly substantial pine cone and in september and october of each year these cones open up and there's a, a winged seed that comes out and there'll be pine crops that every three or four years can be phenomenal and so these things flutter down to the forest floor and what the turkeys do in the winter time is essentially scratch in the pine duff and they're feeding on these pine seeds and that's their primary food source in the ponderosa pine habitats and so the critical thing with that though is you, if you've got too much snow, typically we find in the literature and in our research, if it's, if it's over nine inches of snow on the ground, they have a tough time digging through that snow and getting mm -hmm. to the pine seed on these south slopes. And so that's when it's important to, to know, okay, if, if they're not in the pine forest, then they've got to find some other kind of supplemental food. And in the Black Hills, that's probably either going to be somebody's bird feeder or probably a ranch that, that's feeding operations with cattle and and turkeys can go about two weeks without eating before they starve to death, depending on their body condition. Huh. And so typically what we see is, is these southern slopes, if they get enough sunlight and if they're open enough, hopefully they'll be able to utilize that south slope and get to some of that pine seed. Gosh, they're hardy. Yeah, no doubt I mean, about it. You got to think they're the hardiest species. That's a lot of work for a little seed yeah, like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I probably compare my backyard chickens to turkeys too much yeah but it's crazy to think that you know they have this perfect diet for your chickens and then a wild turkey 
can go two weeks without eating. And then most of its diet is just one seed. Yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> it's just really interesting. Yeah, they can lose they can lose up to forty percent of their body weight um, in in two to three weeks. So, yeah, and it depends on the condition of the bird. Obviously, going into that, if if they're thin going into that, that's that's not good. It'll be less time. But typically, they can go basically. And a lot of scientists will tell you this. Biologists study turkeys when it gets like this, when it's ten below and there's snow. They would actually prefer to sit in a tree most of the day and not move because energetically it's more expensive to get down and burn all those calories when it's that cold looking for food versus just sitting and using that that thermal layer that they got with all those feathers and just just hunker down until it warms up. Hmm. And then you'll see them then start moving once you get into that zero and up, then they'll start getting down and they'll start moving for food. But I mean, I've had radio collared birds, you guys literally sit in one spot for two days when it gets like this and they won't move. I don't blame them. (laughs) And that's an adaptation obviously for survival. So, yeah. Yeah. So with their beards, I I might be, Bobby might've pulled the wool over my eyes. Will their beards freeze off? Will it get that cold? Well, it's, it's probably more related to the nutrition. So if if it does start breaking it brittle, they're, they're lacking some kind of nutritional, um, probably a protein or something in their diet that would, help them maintain that beard. But yeah, I've, I've seen that in some birds that are nutritionally deficient uh, where their beards do break off. Hmm. Beard rot. Yeah. 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 But yeah, I think Bobby was pulling the wool. Over <laughs> yeah. Well, he did. Pretty, you know, he does a good job of that. So, so the, the Miriams out there, do they, uh, typically you'll see them in the wintertime. They'll be in giant flocks, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, 100 to 200 birds is is uh, quite common in the winter for their wintering flocks, and and you'll see, you know, the gobblers typically will be in their their obviously their main groups separated from the hens and the jakes, um, but you know, I've seen even gobbler flocks, 30, 40 birds in a group out on the forest trying to trying to make a living in the winter time. Hmm. Well, so around here in the southeast, and I guess a lot of area east of the Mississippi that's Got a lot of uh, tree cover and such. Um, our lowest hole in the bucket, so to speak, is early successional habitat. Mm-hmm. You know, grassy stuff, wildflowers. You know, it's either mowed or, or trees around here, it seems. what What is the lowest hole in the bucket where you are for the Miriams? You know, that's a great question. And, I, you know, I think that's going to vary uh, depending on where you're at spatially in the state. So. One of the other things that we have to deal with in South Dakota is drought. And so a lot of times I think out on the, on the riparian, the, the prairie habitats out on the prairie, we'll, we'll go through drought cycles where a lot of the grasses and forbs are basically gone. I mean, they've been uh, denuded or they're just not growing because we don't have the rainfall. So obviously Early successional for those turkeys is critically important. So they don't have the grasses, the forbs, and the shrubs that they need to nest and rear their broods. And that's typically what you see during drought out there is their brood numbers are way low. They'll, they'll have, you know, one or two poults, um, you know, per hen, if, if, if not fewer, if none. Um, so, mm. and, and in the Black Hills, I think the, the lowest hole in the bucket, if you will, Right now, it's probably going to be winter habitat. 
And the reason I say that is we just went through a mountain pine beetle epidemic, which is a native insect that, that kills ponderosa pine trees when they get overstocked. And so we, we just went through a period of, of time here where we lost over 600,000 acres of, of mature ponderosa pine in the Black Hills. And that has significant impacts to these, these, these big pine trees that produce pine seeds. And so when you lose that winter food source, I think that's going to obviously be a big, important thing for, for turkeys here. Typically in the Black Hills, we've got a lot of shrubs and grasslands, nice, beautiful meadows uh, for, for nesting and for broodering. And typically those are in pretty good condition. And, and so I would say it's probably the winter habitat component is what's most limiting uh, right now for Black Hills. So it kind of depends on where you're at. And I'm sure you guys hear that a lot from biologists that you know, especially is important. And when you're talking about turkey dynamics, population dynamics, and, and for us, weather is really important as well. Goodness gracious. When you talk about how cold those winters are out there. Mm-hmm. Right now. Yeah. So they, right now. He said it's negative eight. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, uh, Chad, uh, Toxie's joined us. So you might hear a, a, a strange voice now, uh, asking questions. Actually, but- that's a strained <laughs> voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's, I think he said it, it, minus eight degrees there. It's, mm-hmm, it's just incredible. I, it's just fascinating. These birds. And I'm sure all these land on these cattle ranchers, I'm sure that, that they, uh, the word I'm thinking of, I'm enjoying it, but they probably get some sense of I'm helping by it's called satisfaction. Yeah. Satisfaction. Oh, ab- absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, most of South Dakota's private land, similar to what you guys see in the Southeast. And, and if we didn't have producers and landowners, that were tolerant and wildlife friendly, uh, we wouldn't have the numbers of, of birds that we have out here without question. Um, obviously, we do get some years where we could have some increased depredation and our agency obviously works with those landowners to try and help them either with you know fencing or putting netting on, on hay bales, short stopping them if we need to, um, those kind of things where we get into some periods of time where you know, we've definitely got some issues with turkeys coming in and, and depredating on them. But for the most part, most of the landowners are, are fantastic to work with. They understand that the, the, the birds are there and, and need that extra food source in the wintertime and are, are definitely um, amiable to, to working with, with the state agency and then also providing food for those turkeys. Sure. So I, I would think that South Dakota, you probably have a, another level of predators that most states don't have to deal with, with maybe even some big cats. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So our predator dynamics vary, obviously, again, from prairie to the Black Hills. But typically, you're going to have your your similar predators to what you guys have. You know, our nest predators are going to be things like skunks and possums and raccoons, red fox obviously bobcats and, and coyotes, but the, the added apex predator in the Black Hills is the mountain lion. So that's that's the one you're talking about. We do have the big cat in the Black Hills. We do have uh, lions that do go out on the prairie uh, on rare occasions as well. Um, but yeah, for the most part, we do have to deal with obviously mountain lions in the Black Hills as well. So uh, Chad, would you tell us how the, uh, the bird got the name Miriam? Yeah. Sure. So it's actually, you know, you guys probably understand that taxonomic names are Latin names, right? So if you've got Miliagris gallopavo, that's the genus species. But then the subspecies names, like Sylvestris for Easterns, you know, that's kind of comes from the, you know, where the name came from with the coloration and, and these other names. 
But Miriam, Miriami is actually named for Miriam Hart, Hart Miriam, which was uh, an old um, person that, that worked in the, the wildlife field. So that's where that name came from. And huh. so a lot of times these names are associated with the name of a person. So that's where that, that name came from. Yeah, yep. he, Osceola, Dudley was Chief right. Osceola. Yeah. yeah. So it yeah. was named, the subspecies was named in 1900 in honor of Clinton Hart Miriam. He was the first chief of the U.S. Biological Survey. Yep. And the Asian, what do you, what do you say about Sylvesterus? That's the, the subspecies name. Of the Eastern. The subspecies, yes. For did Eastern. you know that, Bob? I did not know that. I didn't know it either. <laughs> Wait a minute. No. Now, you Doc, did. I didn't know it. Did you know it? Hey. I knew you yeah. did, Bob. <laughs> I knew he did, too. <laughs> I, I, well, Miriam is we on. We both learned something. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah, we did. But Miriam, you know, I just I think it's. A, I'm a biology nerd. Oh, I'm not. Well, to I mean, the, that's I'm why I was taking I'm not to Dudley's degree, but I'm. I mean, I consider myself. A I'm sniffing his coat. I'm sniffing his coattails. I, I missed yeah. that one somehow. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, back in the old forum days, I had a, a buddy whose name was Sylvestris. Nice. And yours was Big Doe, wasn't <laughs> no, it? No, we're not bringing that up. Bobby would have said we had a football coach named Sylvestris. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Okay. Well, for, for your audience, you know, people, this is a whole separate discipline in our wildlife science field or these Latin names, you know, right. taxonomic names. And so they're constantly, you know, trying to come up with, you know, do you want to clump these things or do you want to split them out? And and so taxonomy itself is its own discipline in our field. So you could study this for, we could talk about this for hours and really bore your audience if you, if you want. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, I, I like the idea that somebody got, was honored that, that yes, they thought enough too. about yep. him to say, yep. okay, we're going to name these Miriam. Yeah, that's, that's what I think. That's pretty cool. That's not uncommon. And and in fact, you know, back in the day, uh, some of these botanists were uh, like naming plants after their mistress or their wife or whatever. Oh. And then they would, they would part ways that might and, be then, a, and then try to get like the, a Sylvester's and then try somewhere. to get the name changed. Yeah. There's yeah, a lot of drama in, in scientific names for sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> I thought it was always so cool when, uh, I guess I was writing, Dudley was teaching us most of the stuff, but we learned as we, we both have a complete total obsession with, uh, hybrid oaks, mm -hmm. but typically who discovers them and reports it first basically can then name it, right, Dudley? I think it has become a little bit more, uh, I guess the rules have gotten a little And tighter. like who's, who's keeping the rule book? That's the odd thing no hmm. nobody really yeah. knows it's like wikipedia yeah we need to get my buddy nobody. we need to get my buddy ryan russell on here one time <laughs> one time to discuss that because he knows a lot about it Politics. That, that sounds fascinating so, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> so, chad can we go back let me ask you this you, you mentioned earlier uh that they were extirpated Yes. Um, what what ended up happening there what, like something you take medicine for it yeah. does doesn't it what 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 happened and caused that well, you know, a lot of it's um, just based from earlier records, but obviously market hunting, um, basically in the late 1800s, early 1900s, we didn't have, you know, conservation ethics, right? We didn't have regulations that would say, hey, turkey hunter, you need to only go shoot one. What these people did is when they came onto the landscape, they were they were trying to feed families and survive. So they were killing things not only to eat it, to live and support their families, but they were selling them obviously to support their families. Mm -hmm. So it was market hunting 
probably some some habitat things were going on out there that that led to their demise as well. But you know, this is really common not only for turkeys but for a lot of species, elk, for instance, um, bighorn sheep. A lot of these these animals basically were eliminated from the landscape back in these these early these early 1900s, and so. Before we had the, the land ethic, the conservation ethic, you know, to right around the 1930s and 40s when we decided, hey, we need to try and uh, bring bring conservation back to the table here and try and bring these species back um, from extinction. And, and so that was that was the kind of the, the mindset behind that then. So I think a lot of it, just looking at our earlier records, would have probably just been, um, you know, obviously killing too many birds. Uh, to support what was out on the ground. So market hunting. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think he's right. I think there were a lot of things that fell by the wayside there. Everybody's trying to, they, they were making money off these animals and they were, you know, feeding families and whatnot. And there was just no con, no concern about whether they're going to be any. You were living yeah, day no. to day back then. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Thank goodness for, you know. What Walmart. Are, you know, and I think Teddy Roosevelt is the yeah, guy. I was thinking, could, thank goodness for, for Teddy Roosevelt. I, I, and, he's and I'm Dudley not, said Walmart. I think Dudley Mark had, <laughs> I think Dudley had an edible before we got in here or something. I don't know. So chocolate, but, chocolate bar cookies. But I've, I've recently been reading about uh, Teddy Roosevelt. You know, designating Yellowstone as a oh yeah as, oh uh, yeah I mean, first oh, national you park. Just but, not found that. Well, out. No, no, I knew that. But I've been reading about, about it too much. But he's uh, you know the, what. A, what a vision for him to <laughs> be able to say, hey, you're exactly right, Bobby. I mean, uh, we, He's the where hero. we are is the only place this stuff happens. It really, really is. So we're very blessed for the game and fish oh my gosh. Uh, departments yeah. in all the states and, and what uh, people had the foresight to put some of these rules and laws and uh, funding in place. All so, kidding aside, I'm yeah. so proud of when we first started television in the early 1990s and the research was there to prove it. And so people were – the anti-hunting community was just – terrorizing hunters and you know animal rights groups send me money we're free you know and so the point was if you have money and you love animals and you want to donate money to some organization that is the highest percentage of that money will go to work for animals or the animals by a hunting license that's right and it would just by make them insane license. to hear that but it's the truth <laughs> it's the truth that's right yeah mm-hmm. super cool yeah i see chad nodding his head it's, only it's, only it's, it's absolutely the, the world, truth right? so I mean, you know, it's an uphill battle to pick apart what happens in wildlife conservation and the management because you know what we only get to hunt uh, look the bad ones do whatever but that's not what we're talking about no it's not what we we're only get to hunt as part of that plan and it's just worked out brilliantly mm. for our country you know i think the point you guys are making here is is critically important and 99 percent of my research comes from Pittman and robinson funding there it's it is. essentially a, an attacks a on ammunitions and guns and and those those monies come back to the states in the form of doing research and management of habitats so without those funds you guys we we wouldn't be in the place where we're at right now with with a lot of these game species and I th- i'm glad you guys brought that up because you know 99 percent of the funding for this you know turkey studies that i do the bighorn sheep work that i do come from that pot of money so it, it's critically important that that our public understands that no doubt about it Oh, it's, it's, it's everything. It makes it you is. proud because basically hunters are saying, hey, I'll, we'll take I, care of exactly our Exactly words I was just going to say. Oh, you hear us crowing and preaching, and I know I'm on my soapbox sometimes about, you know, hunt to what your place will bear. You know, don't just shoot, 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 kill. But I'm telling you, when 
the word gets out and hunters, most, almost, almost all of them, most almost, um, everybody's willing to pitch in and do whatever it takes for our wildlife to prosper. Oh, they, yeah. They really, really are. And I 100%. think the biggest thing is just lack of knowledge of what to do and how to do it and so forth. But it's crazy to see that just take off in the last five to ten years and what we do. And people that love to hunt and fish are just dying to help out. Yeah. They really are. They yeah, really, they are. really are. So, so Chad, uh, I want to ask a couple of questions. It, the uh, the Miriam, if you compare it to the Rio or the Eastern, is it a bigger body a bodied bird? Is its head a little smaller? It, it's looking at photographs and, and whatnot. Is uh, the spurs? No, I, what are the physical differences? No, there's definitely physical differences. I I get that question a lot and. And I've had my hands, obviously, on eastern turkeys east of the Missouri. Um, Miriam's out here. And there's no question they're, they're a shorter bird, stockier bird. Yep. Um, the average weight on our gobblers is about 18 pounds in the mm. Black Hills. And if you compare that to our easterns, typically they're going to be in the low 20s, um, 20 to 22 pounds for, a, for an average weight on an eastern gobbler that's two-plus years of age. And so they're definitely a little bit smaller. They're definitely shorter um, and stockier. You know, you get your hand on an Eastern. The one thing you really notice when you look at them is the length, how long they are, um, how athletic they are. And, and a Miriam's is definitely a kind of a shorter, boxier, heavy set bird. So there's definitely a difference there in their body build for sure. I'll tell you one thing they have. They have the biggest feet. Of all of them, is that right? And it has to be because of being in living in rocks and something. I don't know why their 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 feet their toes got to hold are on so big and swollen too. and thick compared to our the eastern turkeys. Way bigger feet, they really do. I don't, I don't, I don't think that. I don't yeah. think they have a is is thick or heavy of a beard either. Well, they don't. They have shorter beards. And I was wondering if that's genetic or rocks or, you know, rubber. I think it's probably related to the habitats yeah. they live in. I think. We we do see some Miriams out on the prairie when when they get in some to some pretty good food, they can grow some big beards. So I think it's that's more driven by the habitats they're in. Right. You know, when you're in a dry, you know, almost desert type environment, and you're trying to make it on ponderosa pine seed, you're probably not going to have as healthy of a beard as you would, you know, an eastern turkey that that's in eastern South Dakota that's living high in the hog on. You know, beans. corn food plots and acorns. Oh, and no, no, I think no. a lot of that's just driven more by the food they eat. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. you. I will say the, the big, the ones that just take your breath, beards and all, come from major deep, deep topsoil ag yeah, places. No doubt about Missouri, it. Yeah. Iowa, Illinois, yeah, Indiana. Yeah. Know, places like that. But, it, but, but to flip that, I think when you're talking about taking your breath away, when you see a big Miriam strutting and they've oh, got those beautiful. white tips you know, honestly, on they I are mean, Gorgeous. It's 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 sacrilegious to say one is most beautiful, but boy, they are. They, I've I've looked at them and said that's the most beautiful of all the species. But it's just you know I don't want to compare that because they are all just an unbelievable work of art, yeah. like nothing in nature. No we doubt. we love them all. Yep. So so Chad, uh, you probably as you got ready to come on this podcast, you said, well, if these knuckleheads are got any kind of smarts they'll ask me this well is there something that we hadn't asked we need to ask well i think if a if a turkey hunter's coming out to south dakota i think you gotta you know obviously do your research 
you know, there's there's lots of private land opportunities. Um, if you want to knock on doors, um, go with an outfitter. Obviously, there's those opportunities. Um, there's obviously some public land opportunities as well. We do have a really good walk-in program, which is a, a lease program that we pay private landowners to allow public hunting access. There's lots of that available. Awesome. And then, of course, you've got a lot in the West. We've got the Black Hills, which is almost a million acres of public land that's owned by you and I and, and all the other taxpayers that's available for folks to utilize. And, and I encourage people to, to do some research, look at what you want to do, and you can come out. The, the Black Hills tag is an over-the-counter tag. So that's, you can go online, go to our website, get this license, and you can come and hunt. And, and if you're going to come to the Black Hills, I always tell hunters, you're, if you're going to hunt, you're going to want from south to north, the grading of, of bird densities changes. So in the Southern Black Hills, we don't get the tough winters that they get in the Northern Hills. There's going to be more turkeys. Central Black Hills, there's going to be moderate amounts of turkeys. And then in the Northern Hills, there's fewer turkeys because of the tough weather up there, but there's still good hunting opportunities. And I always tell the hunters, so if you come to the Southern Black Hills, expect there to be more hunters too, because obviously the hunter trend follows the turkey density trend. So there's going to be more hunters in the South and that carries through as well. But but there's um, lots of opportunities here for people to come and hunt. And I just encourage people to, you know, investigate South Dakota, investigate also the other states of the West. Obviously, uh, we've got Miriam's turkeys in Montana, Wyoming, all the way to the Southeast. So there's plenty of opportunities there. And, and I encourage people to go do a new experience. So if you've been hunting Eastern turkeys and you're like, man, I just want to get in the car and, and go try something new. There's nothing better than coming out to the West and, and experiencing a new hunt. It is so much fun. And I, I always look forward to doing that one in my own personal hunting. I love going to new states and see and having new experiences. So I think that's the last thing I'll bring up with related to hunting Miriam's turkeys is keep an open mind and be welcome to new experiences. So I did that exact thing, cuz and I both. And we went to a some kind of National Wild Turkey Federation hunt that they invited us to. <clears throat> this would have been, gosh, late 80s, early 90s, a long time ago. And they had all their special guests, and they just, we didn't have a place to go. So we got, we literally went to some check state. We, we obviously bought our license first, but we bought some check station place for the Black Hills and got a pamphlet and a map, and we had a rental car, just a car, and we're riding through the and Black Hills. Call. Yeah, and yeah, no, no. Unfortunately, the two call, but um, it worked. But we went and we went and we went and we're like, you know, you just had to get your, you know, what we're getting to sightsee a beautiful place. Oh yeah, and here's a little side trail and let's yeah. just park it and walk down here. And this was after a whole, just about a whole day. And then lo and behold, we hear a hen yelp. And I was like, and he was like, oh, that's all we get. And I was like, that's, that's awesome. A turkey. <laughs> after what we've been through, that's awesome. Sit down. We yelp, hen yelps, turkey gobbles. Ten minutes later, I kill one. Golly. And we, that was it. That's all we heard. And then when I shot, like three gobbled. And mm. we moved 100 yards. And then probably 30 minutes later, he, yelled, he killed one too. <laughs> and that right. was in a rental car, just taking potluck, taking a pamphlet map. Yeah. And, and it That's was fun. It was my point in telling him this is reiterating what he said. Yeah. It was just a great experience. I think it was going to be a great experience either way. Just to go do something like that, but yeah, haven't pulled it out. And actually, he filmed he filmed it. 
It was on Primos. He filmed me, and then he gave me the camera, and I actually filmed him. And Primos used his hunt instead of mine. I got a videographer out of boy. That was I had to relive that memory with him because the Black Hills is really a special place. Oh wow! Yeah, do you, do you, all right, Matt, get us a rental car. I need a pen. Yeah, well, in the, uh, Mount Rushmore's in South Dakota. Dakota. We have, our, have on it. We took them. <laughs> we took them to take pictures where you could see the Mount Rushmore in the background. Oh, that's yeah. great. Um, I want to. I never heard that story. I thought oh, I heard yes, all sir. your stories. It's, it's recorded <laughs> on videotape. Um, I heard Cuz overheard Cuz telling a story. It may have been from that hunt, but uh, it had something to do with the vocalizations of the Miriam's turkeys, and uh, yes. he was trying to call in the way he calls here in the South to Easterns, and I don't know if it was a guide or a friend mentioned something about you know changing the way you call a little bit and gave him some tips and it immediately yep. worked can mm-hmm. you can you get into that a little bit oh I, I think you guys have opened up a can of worms it's that's really important and i think a lot of hunters that are used to hunting in eastern turkey um are going to have to change their tactics quite a bit because the home range size of these birds is probably four to five times at least bigger than it, you might expect in an eastern turkey so these animals are covering some some large distances. So I think if you if you get a bird that's working, you gotta understand first and foremost, it it's it's in really open habitat. So their 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 voices are traveling a long way. So it's probably um further than you might think it might be if you're for instance down in the southeast where you've got that dense vegetation and you can't hear them very far. And so you've got to kind of gauge, you know, the distance from where you're hearing that bird. And then, you know, when you're calling at them and then you've also got to be available to get up and go. And by that, I mean, you've got to be willing to move. I think a lot of guys make the mistake of they just sit and they think, OK, I'm in a good spot. I'm going to just wait, wait them out. And, and that can work. But, you know, this bird, if you've got a gobbler with a harem of hens and they're going down a ridge, they could be four or five miles away from you by the end of the day. And so that just gives you a sense of how far these animals can move. And so you've got to be willing to be really mobile and, and move on them probably a lot more so than you would on an Eastern Turkey. I've, I hunted in the Southeast uh, with a, a good friend of mine that, that hunted Eastern turkeys. And I was always amazed at how patient he was. Like he would tell me to sit on all the time and, and just wait. <laughs> and I, I was used to hunting Miriams and running and gunning. And I wanted to get up and move. And 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 one time it was, I got a, a quick funny story. When we first got there, we were hunting in Tennessee on land between the lakes. And and this bird, the first mir- the first Eastern that I heard gobble, it was, I'll still remember it to this day. It was so cool hearing that thunder. And I'm like, we got to go. And he goes, you need to sit down. <laughs> he, he was right, he I that, bet, too. He, he I, goes, that bird is probably under 100 yards. And I I would have thought it would have been, you know, a half mile away. It was so wow. funny. that, And he was training me on how to, to gauge eastern turkeys and hearing them in that dense forest. And so that's just a nice little anecdote about mm-hmm. the differences between yes. hunting eastern and Marion's turkey. One of Mr. Fox's rules when I was a kid, he always used to say, if if he's close enough to answer you, He's close enough to sit down and call. And I know that drives some people crazy, but that was his saying about the yeah. turkeys we grew up hunting in, in the deep south. Mm-hmm. If, yep. he, if, he's, if he'll answer you, you need to stay put. You can call him from where you are. 
Hmm. Interesting. And then I know, you know, this is a Miriam's conversation, but you do have Easterns in the Eastern half of the state. Mm -hmm. Yep. Have you ever noticed any difference in like, uh, you know, like do the Easterns, are they hinned up at the exact same time Hmm. that the Miriam's are? When's the rut? When's the rut stagger? Does that, that, yeah, the, the rut stagger. Good. Good layman's terms. That's right. Does that make sense? So, yeah, absolutely. So our our peak incubation typically in South Dakota is going to be around May 10th through May 20th. And so that's that rut you're talking about where the birds are starting to really nest. And then you've got the, the gobblers that are starting to amp up the gobbling a little bit more, right? Okay. And so I would say, you know, we probably don't see too much differences between the Easterns and the Miriams from a standpoint of, you know, they're going to be walking around with their harems. They're going to have their groups of mobile hens that they're following around. And and the trick to it's timing it, and, and you guys know this as turkey hunters, is trying to find that gobbler that you can either break away from that group of hens Absolutely. or that essentially they're, they've left and they're, now they're searching. And that, that's, that's that time period where you're like, you got that gobbler that will come to that call. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? And so there's always a, those breaks throughout the turkey season where you're trying to find that window. <laughs> That's okay. it, critically important when you're calling at them. So not, but not you know, much. our our typically our, in the West, our turkey seasons start well before um, you know peak incubation, and we, we're trying to adjust. We've actually adjusted the Black Hills. Um, our our seasons typically open the second Saturday in April, and we've actually moved the Black Hills season now to the fourth Saturday in April. Good for you. Mm-hmm. We're still not. We're I, I, I'm trying to get us to that. Peak incubation. I, I wanted to get a May first start date. We're getting closer. We're not there yet, but I think we're gonna hopefully get to that point where we we get to that. That's oh, right. Yeah, that's important. I, I guess you'll be collecting data the whole way just to try to compare. Correct. What, what works Absolutely. better with the population? You know. Yep. Visiting with you and um, experts on Osceola's too. I mean, um, Rios. Um, just curious, especially in your world, the 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 Rio mixing with an Eastern. A lot of times, that's kind of similar terrain, and maybe it's brushier. But you're you're talking about more of a quote unquote mountainous bird, and so I'm just wondering if you see any places where Easterns habitat. I mean, in, in, inhabit successfully, like mountainous kind of traditional Miriam terrain. Because that would be really unique if that happened, or they just go stick to river bottoms, big timber, and all that. Uh, I I always think, you know, how cool it would it have been if we would have had enough of a of a habitat continuity between the Black Hills and that that Missouri River drainage, and right. Easterns would have made it. Could you imagine, you know, if we would have had Easterns? That's, I guess that's what I was asking. Evidently, they yeah. didn't. <laughs> and I I my theory is is I think they probably would have been just fine. I I think uh, you know. Turkeys in South Dakota were successful in that prairie habitat. I think right. they would have been successful. And it turned out to be just fine. You know, we do have primarily ponderosa pine um, in the Black Hills. So right. I think having Miriams there is 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 a good fit, obviously. But but I also think our Easterns probably would have been just fine there as well. And and we've got a lot of country, particularly in the South Central um, part of the state where we've got a lot of rolling hills, some steep topography that, that our Easterns are doing just fine. in. that Prairie Coteau up in the Northeast, 
um, up in Marshall and Roberts County has got a lot of that rolling, steep rolling hills and, and, and bird oak habitat. And they're doing really well up in that stuff. Good to well, know. The, clearly the, the elite thing to chase for our crowd and our following and the people we serve in turkey hunters is the, you know, forever it's been the Osceola because it's hard to get. It's mostly private lands. There's a few public places and all too. And then it's gotten expensive because it was constricted area and all that. But then more and more is the, the, the pure Merriam, you know, the snow white, that's getting to be such a big deal to people too. Uh, yep. and, you know, it sounds like you've got an area that they don't, you know, they don't have anything, uh, kind of, I hate to say, uh, tainting them by, you know, hybridizing with a Eastern yeah, or a, yeah. a Rio or something. Sounds like you've got a, a big consolidated area of pure Merriams up there. Yep. I think if you, if you come out to South Dakota and you're, you're willing to, to look in anywhere from the Missouri river West, you're, you're going to 99% of the time, if, if you're going to go hunt a bird, you're going to find that, that white tipped, that wow. coloration that you're talking about there. <laughs> so beautiful. Yeah, they are. And there, and there's just something about that, that white tip that you see when they come to that full tail <laughs> fan that I think that's what a lot of guys notice first thing. They're like, holy cow, look at that bird. <laughs> Strutting yeah, well, there with those white tips. Well, it's just yeah. such a feathery white that looks like snow. It literally looks like snow. It's just, And mixed with all, still the same, most of the same, just iridescent, incredible colors of all our turkeys. Mm-hmm. It's pretty special. It is. It yep. is. So, uh, Lanny, have you got another question? Or I always like to talk about eating turkeys. Yeah, know, okay. Talk about hunting turkeys. You got a favorite way to, to eat wild turkey? Well, I, I'll tell you my favorite way, and it's been this way a long time, is is I like to put them on the grill. I'll, I'll do a little bit of a marinade, but then I'll I'll take the breast meat and I'll wrap them in bacon, toothpick them, and I'll put them on the grill and barbecue them that way to keep the juice in there. Because mm-hmm. I love that flavor, but if if you let it cook at its own devices, you know it, it will lose its its uh, juiciness. So I, I like to wrap them in bacon and, and cook it slow on the grill and. Man, I'll just pull that out and put it on the plate, and I, I just love eating them that way. That's mm. my favorite. That's nice, good. That's the first. Yeah, yeah. Banana peppers are good on them too. Mm-hmm. Like oh, that. You get yeah. your But what about you, Mac? What you got? I, I do have one question about the roosting. Uh, I mean, around here, I mean, we look for water sources, creeks, streams, rivers. Where do you find that Mary? I mean, do they have historic roost sites? I know traveling large distances, they might not make it all the way back to that same tree the next day. So what do you look yep. for, for roost locations? No, that's, that's a phenomenal question. And I tell guys to look for this characteristic when they're scouting. What, what they like to do in the Black Hills is they want trees that have three to four feet spacing between the branches. So they're typically going to pick up big trees. So we're talking... 10 to 12 inch diameter breast height. So that's a, you know, a big tree with really wide spacing between the branches. They don't like the bushy trees so much because it's hard to fly up in there and maneuver into those branches. So if you can, if you can find those roost trees, that roost characteristic where they've got these bigger, bigger open space trees, um, that's typically where they're going to roost. And, and, and you're absolutely right. You know, they'll move four or five miles. So they're going to try and find that characteristic in the next ridge or the next place they land. So, but a lot of times, you know, you'll be walking through the forest and you'll see these old roof sites. You'll see the droppings below the trees and, and you'll go, you'll look up and you go, oh, yep, that's, that's the characteristic that I need to find for a roost tree. 
Can you send us a couple of pins on Onyx of some examples of those that yeah, we could look just at? Little <laughs> roosting areas. <laughs> just a couple. Yeah. Uh, no big deal. That's funny. Uh. So, so look, Chad, we've got a but look, you've been very patient. You've answered a bunch of our questions. I'm yeah. looking at Toxie. Toxie, if you, if you another question bubbles up, raise your hand and we'll get to him. But I'll just, I'll just interrupt. Well, yeah, yeah that's right. He, I'm not he, doing he, it. Isn't that what I'm supposed yeah, to do yeah, when I have a question? Yeah, he, well, it's just it's like <laughs> around the dinner table here. But uh, Dudley, I want to do get to your uh, r- rapid fire. Rapid question. Right, fire. Yeah, all right. So, yeah, uh, I've, I could ask questions all day. Yeah, why don't you tee it up with him? All right. So, um, Chad, we do this every week with our guests, just kind of to get to know you better. Um, okay. And, and it's a lot of fun. So, we just want you to answer the questions pretty quickly. Um, you can say neither or both or or something if if you need to punt on one or a couple. But uh, anyway, are you ready? So this is uh, Rapid Fire, and it's brought yeah. to you by our friends at uh, – Springfield Armor. That's right. That's and they make that well, – hey, Chad, I bet some of those game wardens up there carry some 1911s on their hips out there patrolling <laughs> us the, the, the badlands of South Dakota. You know, they, so. they probably do. Yep. Uh, yep. Oh, hey, look, now hang on, because once we get finished with this, max got a trivia question for you that's going – well, we'll get to see what you know here first. I bet second, he gets so. it right. Oh, boy. Okay, I'm in the hot seat. <laughs> yeah. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. Oatmeal or grits? Oatmeal. Peanuts. Roasted or boiled? Roasted. Is it a Coke, a pop, or a soda? Pop. <laughs> uh, would you rather hunt the first three hours of the morning or hunt from 10 to 2? First three hours. If you could only yelp or cut for the rest of your life, what would it be? Yelp. Choose one. Owl hoot or crow call? Crow call. Ribeye or filet? Ribeye. Travel to hunt or homeboy? Oh, travel for sure. Okay. Uh, This is important. Natural toilet paper or BYOTP? Oh man, both. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Yeah, that was really good. Uh, I'm sorry about that, Jack. I'm not done. Oh, wait. <laughs> Would you rather funny. hunt Easterns or Miriams? I'm gonna go Eastern because I I live with Miriams. So there okay. you go. Cool story, bro. I good like job. it. Good job. So I have to say, quick, <laughs> quick, quick, in the annals of Mossy Oak and back way back in time, so many things. Originated from our great friend Bob Bob Dixon, but I said made me think about it. Oh, we had we had a, a place where we all hunted together, and someone was like, "Oh, I passed. Oh, I was passed by. I saw a, a one of those cotton gloves picking laying in the road." He said, "Don't touch it. Whatever you do, don't touch it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you ever see a camo glove in the yep. woods, do not, do not touch pick it. it up. <laughs> uh, so, Chad, next we've got a – we're going to ask you a trivia question. And if you get it right, then one of our listeners that's left a review wins a prize. And, and Lanny, we've got a new prize table over here, if you'll yeah. see. Richie, what the prize uh, – Richie will be showing the prize here in a second. But this puts a lot of pressure on you, Chad, because if it you does. if yeah. you don't get it right, then – well, we just don't know what happened. I apologize for him, Chad. He is <laughs> he is the worst. I, I kind of I'm already feeling bad about gonna get this wrong here. I'm in he, the hot seat again. He loves to watch people squirm. I've never seen anything like it. 
All right, Max, oh, all man. yours. Here we go. All right, Chad, yeah. you're playing for Bracey Clark, who left us a review. The prize is a Winchester floor rug that came out of the gamekeeper closet. Yeah, Richard, would you show us? <laughs> all right, we're going to have to we, see. We, we look, we, we got to add some biologic T-shirts to this mix, too. Richie Vanna Wise. Oh, just, it's the iconic Winchester dude on a horse. Yeah, I love it. So I'm one. just taking this Water. opportunity to clean out the closet. Oh, my God. All right, so the question is, we all know that pronghorn babies are very small and delicate when they're born. True or false? They have to stay hidden for up to a week before they can become mobile. True. Ah. Ah. Well, so read him the answer that we had. So what? The, the, the caveat to that is, though, is what, what's their hiding strategy, right? So we know they can get up and walk, but is the strategy better to hide for the first week or get up and run, right? Yeah, it, well, and I think you're nailing it, but we may have worded the question. Uh, of course you did. It's a trick question. As I said, I warned you about them. <laughs> so, uh, I've done pronghorn research, and, and I know they can get up and run and walk and and. Yeah, you're arguing with the South Dakota <laughs> hey, Bobby, senior biologist. I want you to know that. You read, you read the research yeah. by one how, of his how much, students. How many pronghorns so have you messed with? Yeah. Well, so, Mac, will you read the, what we had? Okay, I think this will explain it. So, baby pronghorns might take their first fumbling steps as soon as 30 minutes after birth. They can already outpace humans at just four days old, and by the time they're a week old, they can outrun horses. Pronghorn calves are milk-fed exclusively by their moms until they reach four to five months of age. So you did not ask no. the question right whatsoever. So you you asked a pronghorn researcher who lives yeah. in South Dakota. You're going to argue with him yeah. about no, that. No, no, I wasn't going to argue. But I, I found it fascinating that within 30 minutes that they're, they're walking around, and within a few days they could outrun you, Lanny. But they know better. That's yeah, correct. So there's really no right answer. I think, right. I think I'm going to bet you our, our white-tailed deer are very similar. I bet they so, just, too. I would ask you this. Instead of that question, I, one of the things that I've learned over the years, like all our biologists or game wardens, everybody, if you see a phone, don't touch it. Whatever you do, don't touch it. Well, mom yeah. wasn't there. She's there just – but they're they're like invisible odor-wise for some period of time. I don't know if it's there. Correct. Is that true of pronghorns too? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, they've definitely the, – for, for sure the first couple of days – after mom licks off all of that amniotic fluid, they definitely don't have the scent that they will get when they're at a week or two weeks of age. So they definitely rely on that hiding strategy for sure the first week I mean, to avoid predation. Because even though they could, they can get up and run the first couple of days, if you get a pack of coyotes coming in to hunt that thing, they're better off just sitting still and not moving, yes. hoping that they don't find them. Mm-hmm. No trouble. And the mom's typically not right by there by them. The mom tries right. to lead the predators away yep. from where that fawn is hiding. Yeah, she don't want her scent to draw something to them. It's just mm-hmm. nature. I yep. mean, at every turn, at amazing. every podcast, so at every amazing. biologist we talk to, nature is so amazing. It never gets boring. It's the most fascinating thing in life. It's crazy. Yeah. It, well, it really let's, so. let's just say you were correct. Yeah. Yeah, Bracey. Yeah. Bobby, <laughs> Bobby read it wrong. Yeah, Bobby, Bobby yeah. gets to go to timeout. Yeah, yeah. Bracey Clark, uh, you, you've, you've won this great I, rug. I would here. say, yeah, double his prize. 
Yeah, we got to throw some Biologic t-shirts in there for sure. Mm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, look, you know, Toxie, you didn't get to hear, but at the very beginning, he kind of told us his job description. And one day he's dart gunning a bighorn sheep. The next day he's trapping uh, turkeys with a cannonet. He's that. I mean, he's just all uh, handling all sorts of animals. Got to send Richie out there to hang out with him for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. He's got a dream job. He does. That's incredible. And thank you. You know, uh, we go, I just decided we're going to start something here at Gamekeepers and at Mossy Oak that I see us all do. Whenever we run into a veteran, we always say thank you for your service. From, from now on, with people like you, I want to say sincerely from my heart, thank you for your service. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Great. No, yes, sir. No, I, y'all are and my I appreciate it, guys. I, I appreciate what you guys are doing and disseminating this information from my world, my realm, and, you know, and research and management out to the public. Cause without your guys's platform, we're not getting this information out to everybody. And I, I think this is the kind of thing that should be done all the time. And I really appreciate what you guys are doing as well. Appreciate your service as well. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Dudley uh, has this little segment called Ask Dudley, and where a, a listener asked him a question, he answers it. I'm going to turn it over to you, Dud. So, uh, again, this is not really a, uh, from a specific listener, but I'm just basing this off of, you know, getting questions, folks emailing me and, and talking to me on the phone. Um, folks are wanting to know tips for scouting for turkeys early season. Um, and I've been out the last, I call it my Sunday afternoon stroll. I've, I've been out, uh, scouting the last couple of Sundays. And what I'm noticing, at least in our area is a lack of acorns this past fall and winter, um, and, you know, you might be 100 miles away and, and just had a crazy big bumper crop. But around here, we did not. And the the tip I have, if you're scouting, um, the Easterns around here, I know, are keying in on acorns. You know, there's not a lot of insects. There's not a lot of green stuff to eat. So uh, they're going to be scratching around. And this year, uh, I'm noticing that all the cherry bark red oaks and the southern red oaks are basically the only game in town, at least in my area. And so uh, I challenge you guys to start learning your your oak trees. Um, so if you look on the ground and you see a bunch of scratching, don't just say that this is a good food source and, and move on. Uh, try to figure out what kind of tree it is. Uh, and that way, you you know, you might can save it on your own X on your phone and uh you know, come back and look for other trees. But if you know that the cherry barks are dropping and the Southern reds and you know, the site relationship that they're usually going to be in the drainages and the lower slopes, you can uh, look on your phone at a topo map and find similar areas uh, that look exactly the same, you know, same elevation, same aspect and go find more cherry barks and more Southern reds to check for early season before things green up a lot. Oh yeah, that's good. So, and and that's going to help you on years. You know, if there's acorns everywhere, uh, it's it's harder to narrow it down. But on a light year, you can be really successful hunting near food sources just because there's not that much food around. So, thank you, Mister Know It All. Well, that was good. Thank you, Dudley. Well, guys, look, uh, we had Doctor Chad Lehman, 
and uh, and he's I still see him still sitting there. Uh, South Dakota Game and Fish. He's a senior biologist. We really enjoyed talking to you, Chad, and and uh, we'd love for you uh, if you ever get a chance to come down this part of the world, look us up. And uh, we can't promise you a turkey, but we might uh, we we can talk about it. We, we can try. At, at, at Bobby will take you to his favorite lease every time. Yeah, we might trade well, I'm some. I'm sure it'd be a it'd be a great experience no matter what. I tell you what, Bobby will do. We don't have many hills to climb, so you'll be good there. No, we don't. (laughs) Bobby is a sneaky good fisherman, and he has a sneaky spot. So he won't. He might even tell us where he hunts, but he will never reveal a a hot fishing hole to us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, bring your fishing pole. Yeah, love to have you. Chad, we enjoyed it. We sure did. did. uh, We'll stay in touch with you, and if you need anything from us, you be sure and holler at us. Okay. Keep hatching those. Keep hatching those turkeys. That's right. Yeah, we're gonna try. Yeah, that's right. Good deal. Thank All right, you. Take care. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks, Chad. All right, guys. We, uh, did we learn anything? Always. Always. We learned a lot. Yep. Uh, I've got more questions, but, you know, uh, the show must go on. we yep. got other things to do. Yeah, you know, it's, one thing we did learn is, like, there's no perfect answer to a lot of these things. It depends. Because, it depends. you know, one, one says – Sitting still and patience, and the other one says, move, 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 mm-hmm. you know, just depending on where they are. So, mm-hmm. you know, it just goes to show you develop your own. Listen, everybody, soak it all up, be your own man, you know, develop your own way of doing things, you know, based on where you are. It was interesting to hear him say how the, the Miriams and those ponderosa pines were synonymous with, with each yeah, other. Yeah, I found that really interesting. And, yeah. and just, you know, what he's saying, how it relates to the turkey. Uh, restoration efforts, you know, and how they got there is really interesting. And, it, and it's interesting to me there's a hard line there between the Easterns and the Merriams. Well, right? I was in pure Merriam country last spring in northern yeah, New right. Mexico, and they hadn't had a hatch in years now. It was mm. bad. bad. And uh, they blame it on the – they've had such drought conditions at the wrong times. They aren't – and they said their their primary source is the pine nuts. I had mm. no idea. That's it what was he that was critical. About, critical. But in their world, it is. And so without them, they, they don't have nutrition or even have good hatches. Yeah. Pinyons. Mm-hmm. Pinyons. Exactly. So I'm trying to think when this one, you know, there's going to be one more event for the Mr. Fox Fest. Mar- yeah. It's at March, March 11th. 11th. They'll be here at the, yep. at the West Point Mossy Oak store. And we may or may not have a short one. We'll talk about that. Uh oh. Because things are really looming to Uh-oh. be uh, big. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. And, yeah. Yeah. All I can say with this podcast, which will be prior to our event at West Point, is that we are just can't. There's no words for the gratitude we have for the love of Mossy Oak and the brand and my dad, no and what he stands for. Because everybody, everybody here knows it's just so pure and all. But it's like it is absolutely. We way underestimated what kind of response there would be. I mean, you just don't know until no, you do something. No. And so, and, and, at any rate, to everybody that is out there that has responded or let us know or in whatever form, you know, wait, you know, waiting in line for stuff and all. It's just crazy. And we just know, no matter what anybody says anywhere on the planet, we are so grateful for that love. Cause let's just face it. That's what I say all the time. Love at the end of our run loves all we got. And when we get that kind of love from that many people, it just makes our life awesome here. Hmm. Well, so the Fox vest in and of itself is incredible. You know, there was one auction at the end of it, it went for, but there were also, I think uh, there were uh, about 10 really a world-class one of collection a kind of calls. custom oh, yeah. calls. Yeah. Wait, wait, you know, Calls it normally you'd be on a wait list two to five yeah, years to yeah, get. Yeah, yep, yeah. they we, did. We people, looked at them today. They yes. did that, and all those are going to be donated to charity. And we're actually found out that we're donating a lot of them to charity for auctions, for raffles, 
places. Mm-hmm. You know, Those there's got to be a limit to it. We just can't do it all over the place. But sure. Had no <clears throat> idea of uh, yeah. the, the outpouring of uh, response to it. And he, and he loves it too. Yeah, he does. He yeah. sure loves it. He loves it. <laughs> Dudley, you got anything to add? No, I, I was just really interested that the, the man that uh, was the high bidder on the vest used to work at Biologic in he the did. warehouse you know, a his, long time ago. His, his, st- well, his stepdad was, was actually yeah. overall the leasing for international paper, their wildlife division, whatever, when we were leasing land from them. Portland Landing. Yeah, small yes, world. So we small knew him world. from 30, 25 yeah. years ago. Just Jimmy Bullock. Great guy. Coincidence. Crazy. Yeah. But a prince of a guy. Oh my! Gosh. Oh man! Yes. Great family, yes. no yeah. doubt about it. Yeah, and Dudley, he worked in the he was in the marketing department. Oh, he I'm was, sorry, he was an I intern. didn't get the full story. Yeah, he's yep. he's a really smart young man. So sure we taught him all we knew, Lanny. I know, and he did something. With he did it. something. And he was yeah <laughs> on top of what y'all taught him. He was able to. <laughs> he still he didn't hold him back. Yeah, he was able to succeed yeah. anyway. <laughs> well, that's good, Mac. You got anything to add? He's over there booking a trip to South Dakota. It looks yeah, like it sounds like I got good odds based on the guy buying the Fox Fest that yeah. we all to. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> as spring as spring approaches, I might get harder for them to corral up in here. Oh, look, studio. I'm glad we're packing. This is the yeah, third one yeah, this week, yeah, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Oh, so but hey, just you better my, get them in, buddy, because if it's you starting, do get them in, it's I gonna mean, be starry I, eyed my, up in on here. my trail cams. A couple of places I've seen a strutter. There's flowers blooming in my yard. Wood ducks are starting to nest. I mean, it's happening. The season of rebirth is happening. We had um, Ash Wednesday yeah. uh, at the church right. last night. It's the most special season there is. So please get out there and, you know, connect with all this stuff, stuff mm-hmm. God gave us, and cherish it. You only get so many springs. It's going to be a good one. That's right. Have you planted any tomatoes yet? Don't no, lie. No. Okay, okay. I just wanted Rich- to. I'm still going to beat you this year. <laughs> Richie, uh, were you able to stay awake during this podcast? Yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah he, wants to go, he wants to go dart a bighorn. I mean, so yeah, if any, any of our uh, listeners might, I mean, we've got you know, a few listeners, if know anything about sleep apnea and could help Richie, we'd, we'd appreciate trying to diagnose this problem. <laughs> I'm more into the sleep deprivation. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, Taxi, you missed it at the beginning, and we don't have time to go back. But, uh, so anybody else got anything to do to say? Add, Dud, look. 80 uh, minutes in. Yeah, 80 minutes in. Why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? <laughs> goodbye, Dudley. Get us out of here, Mac Mac. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine and don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.